Hello, everybody, and welcome in to yet another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup here on WSJU Radio, live on iHeartRadio. Once again here as we get set for our May 2nd edition on the show, I'm Michael Zabo, once again live here from our Marillac Hall studios here on the campus of St. John's University here on WSJU Radio, once again live on iHeartRadio. Good to be with you all again here on this dreary Monday afternoon, uh, once again May 2nd. I can't believe it's May really, it's uh, for all uh, St. John's students over here the semester is winding down, everybody getting ready for finals, and that has really brought us to our final show of the spring 2022 semester. Um, at times it feels like it's gone slow, times it feels like the semester goes really fast. You know how it is with time, time is a funky thing, um, but this is the final show of the semester. Um, I am a senior, so I will be uh, graduating from St. John's uh, at the end of the month, but I will still be around uh, for my graduate year. Um, so stay tuned. We'll, we'll see if uh, next semester I'll still be doing uh, shows live here in this format, or maybe we'll be taking it over to the podcast world permanently. We'll see how things go as the summer rolls along and into next fall. Um, maybe we'll do some summer episodes uh, and then continue that, or little bit of summer episodes into um, into the fall uh, and into the a live show uh, right here back on the station. Uh, just st- uh, keep a stay tuned really on uh, the social media um, social media pages will keep you up to date on all those updates regarding the show uh, and the future of it. but for now, uh, the final potentially the final show on here ever, but for now, Uh, The final show, at least for the spring uh, 2022 semester here live on the air. And those aforementioned social media pages you could check out uh, to keep up to date with all the updates and happenings regarding the show. Uh, Follow my Twitter page at underscore MSportsRoundup and my Instagram page Michael underscore Zabo. To follow all the updates regarding the show, uh, you can follow uh, each and every episode of this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. If you cannot make it to tune in to me live here on WSJU Radio, um, we're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can check out each and every episode there. But just had to get that out of the way, a little nostalgia. You always feel it on a final show of a semester, but you know now creeping in toward being a senior, I'll be here one foot in, one foot out, sort of as a graduate student, hanging around, but a lot of things will be going on, um, you know, for me, so we'll see if I'll be on uh, the air, Um, we'll continue the show, or or just go podcast from here on out, or or whatnot, we'll see how it goes, Um, but just wanted to put that out there before we start and get down to business, and Boy, do we got a lot of business to get down to to talk about. You know, a lot of good things happening with the Yankees and Mets, um, which hasn't happened in a while. We haven't really seen both New York baseball teams be get off to a good start at the same time and be pretty good at the same time. We'll talk about the NFL draft. We'll start out the show with that as the Jets and Giants, honestly, had really good drafts. Joe Douglas putting together a good draft for the Jets, I think, making some good moves, good selections. Uh, the Giants in the first year of the Joe Shane regime, I think, did really well, took some bold steps, 
uh, a good breath of fresh air compared to the Dave Gettleman era um, of GM drafting and whatnot. Um, so let's get right to the draft. Uh, we'll talk about the Jets and the Giants first and my full roundup on them. Then we'll talk about uh, certain predictions, um, certain uh, reflections on the draft overall. So a little bit of some shockers. Um, before the Jets start out, they took uh, Ahmad, a.k.a. Sauce Gardner, at the, with the number four overall pick, the cornerback from Cincinnati, who's rated... Uh, the, uh, the best corner by many in this draft. Uh, a big need, which is a really big need for the Jets. I know a lot of Giants insiders were talking about the Giants maybe looking at Gardner at five. We all know the situation with Bradbury. Uh, he's owed a lot of money. Uh, the Giants really pushing the threshold on the cap. Maybe you look at a cornerback there, but uh, the Jet, uh, you'd have to see where the rest of the draft would fall, picks one to four. And the Jets wind up taking Gardner at four. Um, I think it's a really good pick for them. A really good cornerback. You 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 look at all the tape. You look at the stats in college. Uh, I mean, just everything uh, that you're looking for in a good lockdown corner that the Jets haven't had since Darrell Rivas. They haven't had uh, a really good player in that secondary since him. And you know, hopefully, their hope is you know Gardner is that sort of player or grows into be into being that sort of player. I think for now, listen, in terms of picks and whatnot, they can all turn out bad, can all be positive about them on draft night, but then they could turn sour, things don't go right, they, uh, a player doesn't develop how many expect, and all that sort of stuff. But for now, and everything that you know about them so far, I think it's a really good pick there at four. Then they went uh, wide receiver at number 10 for... Uh, they chose Garrett Wilson from Ohio State. Um, Drake London went a couple of picks earlier. He was constantly rumored uh, to the Jets at 10, but he gets picked, uh, I believe, at, by Atlanta at 8, who traded up. Um, I believe they traded up there. Don't call me on that, but I believe they traded up. Um, and so it's a pretty solid pick um, from Wilson there. A, a, I think he was the second-rated uh, wide receiver. Uh, in the draft, uh, there's pretty good uh, pick there. And then I thought, which was, and then the big move that I thought, which was great brilliance by Joe Douglas, um, trading back into the first round, um, right to toward the tail end of the first round, and taking edge rusher Jermaine Johnson. Uh, fantastic move. Johnson was a guy that he kind of fell in the draft. Many thought he, he had a top 15 kind of skill, top 15 in the draft kind of skill, and the Jets get him at 26. Uh, I think it was a great move by them in an area that, once again, they really need to upgrade in and pass rush. There's so many areas that the Jets have holes in, but um, really that pass rush also another aspect of you know a need that they really needed to fill. So you have Jermaine Johnson there, Quinnen Williams on that defensive line. Uh, good start there to build around uh, for um, head coach Robert Sala, and that's where he—that's what he wants the identity of this team to be in his defense and getting to the quarterback. Um, some good picks, I think, some good moves there to try and set up that identity. Um, and then they took—they uh, swapped picks with the Giants at 36 and 38, also giving a fourth-round pick to the Giants there to move from 38 to 36. 
and they moved up and they took uh, the highest rated running back in the draft, Brees Hall, which at first kind of scratches your head because they already have a dynamic running back in, in Michael Carter. So I, this pick felt like more of a luxury. They want you know something more on offense, really create really dynamic offense. They 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 did not uh, they were not able to get any of the wide receivers on the market. Uh, Tyreek Hill opted for the Dolphins. Um, nothing going with uh, any talks for DK Metcalf um, with the Seattle Seahawks. Um, they were rumored for uh, to try and trade for Debo Samuel, but the 49ers are. Still holding firm with Debo and hope and hoping that they could figure out the issues between them. So the Jets really loading up on offense a little bit there. Take a wide receiver at 10. Uh, take a running back at 36 uh, to set up a great running back duo between Carter and Hall. Uh, really dynamic rusher there. And then they chose Jeremy Ruckert in the third round, which hits close to home. The Long Island native gets selected uh, to the New York Jets. And uh, a couple of my friends who may or may not be listening to this show, um, you know who you are out in Oceanside, know Jeremy Ruckert, uh, the tight end, very well from his days playing high school football out there and how he was just dominating everybody, um, playing multiple positions and whatnot. Uh, went off to Ohio State, I believe, in college and did really well and now is drafted to the Jets, sort of coming uh, much, much closer to home. Um, so uh, then you, you got a couple of picks a little later on that try and fortify that defensive line uh, and the offensive line as well. Um, I, I, again, I think the Jets are the biggest ones who really won the draft. Uh, I think they got dynamic players at multiple positions. They filled some holes. Um, I, it was, I think it was a really good draft by uh, Joe Douglas. On the Giants side of things, I think it was a pretty pretty good draft by by Joe Shane. I think in his first uh, in his first round with the Giants, I think the first I think the first round was absolutely a plus. I think the day two picks were kind of like curious, um, maybe a little bit of a reach and whatnot. And day day three was was somewhat solid, I think. Um, so, but just. You know, I think it was a pretty solid draft overall. Uh, I think day two and day three, I think they reached a little bit on some picks. Uh, but first round, I think they absolutely um, hammered it out of the ballpark. I think my absolute dream was that they did something similar to the Jets and they traded into the back end of the first and would have gotten uh, Tyler Linderbaum, which that would have been my absolute dream fantasy. That would have been an insane first round and whatnot, but... Um, because we know how much the Giants need a center on that offensive line. But um, either way, I think it was a really good first round. Uh, I, I think Shane really did a good job in putting up some smoke screens. I think Kayvon Thibodeau was always one that you felt uh, that was going to, to be there at five for them, at the, the number five pick, or even number seven, because I don't think Carolina was ever going to go edge rusher. Um, so he pro probably was available at either pick. Um, but there was a lot of conversations that he might fall in the draft, that um, there's issues of his character. He's too much about the brand and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that he had a bad interview with the Giants. They're really looking at offensive tackle Charles Cross now and, and all that sort of stuff. I think that was a little bit of a smokescreen. Um, 
and I think it was a good job by Shane in that he really had whatever pick of what he wanted at 5-7. and seven. Uh, They knew that Carolina was probably going with a, an offensive uh, lineman, um, and they still would have had a ton, and uh, ju judging by how the first couple of picks in the draft went, they were still going to have their pick of offensive linemen at 7, so they... they um, uh, they weren't going with the um, the the Carolinas offensive lineman. They they clearly valued Evan Neal better because they still could have picked uh, they still could have picked Thibodeau at seven. Like I said, I don't think the the Car Carolina Panthers were going edge at six. So they, he probably still would have been there available at seven. But the Giants just wanted to solidify things, get Thibodeau at five. Neal at 7, that of course potentially affects, uh, based on the slots, uh, base, uh, it can affect their rookie contract, so I think that's why uh, Thibodeau went to 5 and Neal went to 7, that's how the Giants did that, because of factoring in the cost of those rookie contracts and whatnot. Um, I heard that story thrown out on social media as well, um, but like I said, I think Kayvon Thibodeau, fantastic pick. Uh, help the pass rush, which the Giants have barely had a pass rush uh, for most of the last five years. You had Leonard Williams a couple years ago at 11 sacks, but then dropped off last year. Um, you have uh, rookie second-rounder Aziz Ojolari. Uh, he had eight sacks as a rookie last year. Uh, so you build around him. Leonard Williams can get some pressures at the very least. Um, you have Dexter Lawrence there, and then now you add Thibodeau, a solid uh, line that hopefully you get uh, a good production out of in that pass rush. And then Evan Neal, the offensive tackle from Alabama, um, one of the, I think it was the first or second rated offensive tackle in this draft, a really good uh, pass blocker. Um, I'm sorry, a really good run blocker, um, Evan Neal. You really like a lot of his skill set, really big, uh, physical, but athletic presence. Um, so I think a really good pick there at 7 uh, for the Giants. Um, like I said before, with the, the Jets portion uh, of this draft talk, uh, they swapped picks and acquired a fourth rounder from the Jets to move back to 38. And then the Giants moved back once again, trading with Atlanta to move back to 43. And then they took wide receiver uh, Wandale Robinson from Kentucky with the number 43 overall pick, which... I thought it's a little bit of a reach. Uh, you read stuff about Robinson and whatnot. He was projected to be, uh, to be, I think, at like a 100 pick or something like that. Like that's where he was uh, rated, and the Giants pick him up at 43. So they really, really like what they saw in Robinson and all the scouting reports and everything. Um, and you've seen some tapes. I think you really like it. He, he's a Really small, uh, undersized, but really, really fast wide receiver. Uh, we see in the league a lot of receivers uh, like that on some teams. The, those game-breaking wide receivers that can run these jet sweeps and whatnot. These smaller, faster guys that can really shake up the playbook a little bit uh, and provide some game-breaking offense a little bit. Um, so I think the Robinson pick can help really diversify the playbook. A little bit for the Giants, um, and I think overall move this Giants offense into 2022 
as an offense, which at some times has just been so predictable, so archaic and whatnot. Um, so I think it's a, a pick they reach on, but I will stress this. This is the first year of Joe Shane and the this front office regime. I do think they earn a little bit of a benefit of the doubt in terms of these picks. Clearly, they like what they see here with Robinson and what he could bring to the offense and how he can diversify the playbook. I think for now, you'll trust it uh, and, and see a maybe an interesting wild card of a pick. And then they got offensive tackle Josh Azu in the third in the third round. Uh, also cornerback Cordell Flott from LSU in the third round as well. Tight end Daniel Bellinger in the fourth. Um, then you got a safety uh, linebacker, um, linebacker Micah McFadden from Indiana. I saw a little bit of his tape. Really like what you see there as well. See if he can break in as a late round pick. Um, and again, they short up their defensive line toward the end of the draft. Like I said, I think the Giants was a pretty solid draft. I think they hit that first round out of the park. Um, and then I, I think some of their day two and day three picks, um, in terms of where those guys were projected, they, they drafted them a bit higher than their projections. So I think they reached on some of them, but they clearly like what they see there. And like I said, think he, there's you could give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt um, in this front office but really like the draft for the for this Giants team and hopefully they build something competitive in 2022 if you are a Giants fan like me um, but really good stuff there let's move on to some overall reactions around the draft I think an initial surprise was the number one overall pick and that was the Jacksonville De Jaguars taking Trayvon Walker instead of Aiden Hutchinson, who we all thought for months and months was going to be picked at, um, at number one, uh, the edge rusher from Michigan. Kind of surprising. They went with Walker, who I think has plenty of upside, but Hutchinson, I think, is going to come in and provide a lot of immediate impact. Um, I, the Lions, I think, were absolute dreamland that Hutchinson, uh, that the Jaguars did not put Pick Hutchinson and the hometown kid was right there for them. That's a team in the Lions that really need a lot of playmakers on both sides of the ball, but especially that defense that has really been horrendous uh, for a long time. Uh, hope they're you know I think they just picked up an impact defensive player from the get-go for their pass rush on that defensive line. Uh, I think it was shocking that Jacksonville really passed up on Walker. Um, who I believe there was a, a story that uh, I believe, um, I think it was Ian Rappaport who uh, put it out um, just after Walker got drafted or whatnot, talking about how he got in a car accident or something. Um, I, I don't know how that came, came about or why it wasn't, I guess, reported earlier if they had that information. But, um, you know, it's a Jaguars team that, you know, they're talking about uh, character issues, building a new culture now. They brought in Doug Peterson, fired Urban Meyer, and all. I just thought it'd be a pretty no-brainer pick to bring in Hutchinson um, and go from there. But I think that was quite a shock there at number one. Um, a huge pickup for the Lions, who said thank you very much. Um, the other shock, of course, was the quarterbacks. Uh, we only had one quarterback picked in the first round. Um, two quarterbacks, I believe, picked in the top 80. Um, 
you know, I, I, I forget where um, Desmond Ritter went because he was the second quarterback that went. But we were, I think we were all kind of surprised. We thought at first that I think most people thought that Malik Willis was going to be or could pot potentially have been the first quarterback off the board in the draft. Um, wasn't. Kenny Pickett was. But we still thought that Willis could pot potentially go in the first round or then maybe in the second. He just kept on falling, kept on falling, kept on falling. And I get that the, uh, the draft class this year is not as star-studded as in years past, but really shocking that some teams that could use a quarterback, maybe even not immediately, um, but certainly could have them sit behind uh, a veteran and whatnot and learn a little bit, kind of shocking that they continue to pass up um, on someone like Willis or any other quarterback until... Ritter got taken, I believe, in late second or third. Um, I'm looking at you, Atlanta. I think that was kind of a shock that someone like Atlanta, too, kept passing on them. I guess they passed on a quarterback last year, so they weren't going to pick one up this year, I, I guess. But um, still kind of shocking, some teams that bypassed it all. Um, and it's really a lot different of a draft than I think most younger football fans uh, like myself or or just football fans in general we've, it's very it's a very different draft than um, what we've seen in years past where we see a lot of quarterbacks going early and often in the first round and then and not only that we see teams trying to trade up for them we saw plenty of trade-ups this this year but I think it was kind of strange for a lot of football fans seeing trade up for a running back, trade up to go and get this defensive lineman or that offensive lineman or whatnot. Kind of atypical than what, you know, we've usually seen in the draft these last couple of years with, uh, you know, that's featured some star-studded quarterback classes or, you know, a couple of good quarterbacks at the top of the draft that everybody wants to get their hands on and whatnot. So I think that was a very interesting dynamic how, you know, you were really waiting to see where the quarterbacks were going. I think a lot of people will question this, but I think the Steelers made a good choice in getting Kenny Pickett. Um, I know a lot of people will say um, he's more ready to play because he's older than, than a lot of recent draftees and all that sort of stuff. Um, you expect Mitchell Trubisky to start and all of that. But I think he has that skill set that if there are issues with Trubisky or if he's bad, uh, Pickett has enough college experience um, and whatnot um, that you'll have that he he'll, he would be ready to start right away. In that case, if if they don't like what they see from Trubisky in the first couple of games, or he gets injured, rather than bringing in someone someone like Willis who maybe would fit their uh, their offense a little bit more, uh, maybe open up their playbook a little bit. Um, but also be somebody who probably ne would need to sit a year and really hone his skill, um, be learning behind a veteran or whatnot. Um, so I thought it was a solid pick there from Pittsburgh, who they could not go, they could not take any other position at number 20. They had to take a quarterback. Uh, there was no question. Um, that's their biggest need now with the retirement of Ben Roethlisberger, um, and then the quarterback room, Mitchell Trubisky, and then, of course, the unfortunate passing of Dwayne Haskins. Um, either way, they, they needed to take some, uh, a quarterback at that position there at number 20, 
and they did, and I think it was a solid pick, it, a pick with uh, uh, Kenny Pickett. Um, a very interesting draft overall. Um, we'll see, of course, how the picks wind up and uh, see how these teams prepare for the 2022 season in just a couple of months. Um, also, actually, before I'm starting to transition subjects, um, I'm almost going, going to pass up some uh, some of the bigger news too that we saw in the draft. More the more so on the uh, main roster side of things, uh, more established player side of things is is the is the trades that we saw. We thought Debo Samuel could potentially go on draft night. He did not, as the 49ers want to continue to try and work out those issues with him, and specifically a new contract. Um, we thought for a couple weeks maybe uh, Seattle is trading, uh, could trade away uh, DK Metcalf. That has not happened, and that has really cooled down those talks recently. Um, but we wind up seeing A.J. Brown wind up being, uh, being traded to the Philadelphia Eagles from the Tennessee Titans. A big move there um, for Philadelphia, and they're going to have a really interesting offense. Jalen Hurts, Devonta Smith, uh, Jalen Rager, and then A.J. Brown as your wide receiver core. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good way uh, uh, to start out. Um, a really good offensive core. I think they have in Philadelphia. It's can they figure out the offensive line? Uh, they still the, Their defense, you still got to upgrade and see how those newly drafted players develop and whatnot. Um, but that was a big-time move. And then Marquise Brown got traded uh, from the Ravens to the Arizona Cardinals, a, a good pickup for the Cardinals, uh, who could use some help uh, on the wide receiver end after Christian Kirk walked in free agency and the Jaguars paid him an obscene amount of money. So now you got DeAndre Hopkins and Marquise Brown as your one and two. Um, so pretty interesting. Uh, trade there, and I, I think it was kind of a head-scratcher for Baltimore because you just gave up your best pass catcher. Um, and then, uh, you know, I know Mark Andrews is there, but, you know, who who's their wide receivers? I mean, Bateman will be a second-year player. I get you have a, a wide receiver there, um, but a lot of it is, you know, very up in the air, younger uh, players, recent draftees and whatnot. Um it's and I get the the running back guys will come back from injury, J.K. Dobbins and whatnot. But um, I think it's re it's really strange what Baltimore is doing uh, with that wide receiver core. I think and it really it really started turning eyebrows because even Lamar Jackson uh, was tweeting out, you know, what is going on here and all that sort of stuff. Um, so now the Ravens will have to repair an already. I guess sort of strained relationship with Lamar Jackson. I don't know if it's strained, but um, he's entering into the final year of his contract, and there are no talks whatsoever. Uh, they're not going to make. Uh, I don't think it looks like uh, by the time the season comes that he may have a contract. So, uh, really interesting, not a good way, I guess, to go into the final year of your quarterback's contract when you want to try and retain him. Uh, his number one receiver is traded away. So the Ravens are really going to have to lay out a plan and uh, revitalize their relationship with their star quarterback. Interesting uh, to see what happens there, but those are two big moves 
uh, in the draft uh, that really shocked many and a really interesting draft um, overall. Like I said, we'll see how these teams develop um, and we'll see how uh, the preparation begins for the 2022 season in the next couple of months. think the Giants and Jets did phenomenal. Uh, let's see if uh, this season brings some more competitiveness um, from both sides in terms of their uh, win-loss record for the Jets. Zach Wilson to take a step up uh, for the Giants. See what Daniel Jones has in a new uh, coaching staff and regime and how, can, how the rest of the team develops around him. But moving on now to Major League Baseball, as like I said at the top of the show, the Yankees and Mets both having a really, really good uh, start to the year. You really haven't seen recently the Mets and the Yankees be good at the same time, but also start the year really well. Uh, we've seen the Mets sometimes get off to some hot starts to the year, then fade away. Um, the Yankees, it always seems like with the Yankees, no matter who their personnel is, they always seem to kind of limp through the early part of the season, limp through April and early May and whatnot, maybe play around 500 and whatnot, not really inspire anybody, uh, any sort of confidence or anything, just get along to a slow chug to the season and then really settle in and start ripping off the wins and start becoming a solid uh, playoff team at the very worst. Um, but... You know, so th this year is a complete change for the Yankees, who are off to a 16 and six start to the year. Like I said, very atypical of the last couple of years for the Yankees, who even Aaron Judge said it uh, post game after yesterday's 6-4 win against the Kansas City Royals. Even said it, you know, the last couple of years we get off to these slow starts to the year, and most of the year it feels like we're battling back. Now you have a leg up uh, to start the year. Um, you know, so I think that's really good there. The Yankees uh, have the best record in baseball. Uh, the Mets right behind them. Uh, the Yankees have won. Start off with the Yankees, really. Uh, the Yankees have won nine straight. Uh, have completed uh, two sweeps in the last week. Uh, they just swept the Kansas City Royals um, this weekend, and then the Baltimore Orioles uh, last week, and then they also swept uh, the. Cleveland Guardians uh, last weekend. So not, there you go. Three straight sweeps, uh, nine straight victories. Um, and now on they go to a really big three-game set against uh, the Toronto Blue Jays in Canada. Uh, this week we have received, a, there has been a story put out on social media that the, Yan that the entire Yankees team is now vaccinated and all set to go. Um, to get to Canada and play out these three games. So it's a really big series with the Toronto Blue Jays this week. And I think it was said perfectly by John Boy and Jake on Talking Yants. This does have a, so far early this season, it do, this does have a little bit of a 2019 feel to the Yankees where they were really beating up on the competition. They're able to get up for the uh, big, uh, the bigger opponents and those series against the bigger opponents um, in a lot better fashion and feel more confident about uh, yourselves and as a fan watching your team uh, rather than last year, which was really a chaotic up and down mess as a fan, really, where, you know, it's just, you know, crazy to watch, live or die, all that sort of stuff, tension filled from the beginning to the end. Um, 
a little bit different so far for the Yankees, who were kind of like getting off to that slow start in the first uh, in the first week or so, but now recently have ripped off this big winning streak um, and really settled in uh, to this year, and that's been a lot in part because of their offense. And I think I've said it before on here. I've certainly said this a lot off air uh, to a lot of my friends and fellow baseball fans that my issue with the Yankees was always the offense. How are they going to hit with runners in scoring position? Can we see DJ LeMahieu get back uh, to 2019, 2020 DJ LeMahieu? That was an on-base machine, a runners in scoring position machine, a really good contact hitter, being able to consistently put the ball in play. Can he get back to that? after having a sort of a down year in 2021. It was a league average season. It wasn't awfully terrible, but it was a lot different than the DJ LeMahieu that Yankee fans came to know in his first two years here and earning the nickname Lemachin. Um, so, so far he's getting back up to that. I believe he's batting, uh, he's over 300 batting average this year, hitting a um, bunch of RBIs. Don't have the stats in front of me, but... Um, got off to a good, he's getting off to a good start to the year. Uh, Anthony Rizzo, we know about him, nine home runs on the year to league Major League Baseball, uh, really hitting well in that leadoff spot uh, at times that they put him there. Um, fluctuates between the leadoff spot and three spot and all that sort of stuff there. I think the leadoff spot is a, is a solid place for him, although if he continues to hit for power like he is now, they may want to put him second or third, you know, to hopefully have uh, runners on and whatnot. So uh, when he does come up and, you know, he has that power. Um, Aaron Judge is starting to really heat up after his first week was kind of slower. He's now really heating up. He's hitting over 300, uh, eight home runs, uh, 15 RBIs on the season so far. He's really starting to heat up, and once he heats up, you know the contract year is, of course, going to become a story. Um, and, of course, the biggest part is the bottom of the lineup starting to hit well. Last year, in this first week or so of the season, you really saw the Yankees struggle in runners in scoring position situations, uh, grounding out into double play a lot, and that was uh, particularly a big problem for the bottom of the order, who a lot of it was really a black hole. But this, this year so far, we saw Higashioka get a hit this weekend. Um, Isaiah Kainafalefa settling in to the shortstop job on both sides of the ball, starting to get a couple of solid hits, sacrifice flies, um, make some good defensive plays. So he's starting, starting to settle into pinstripes, which is a good sign. And then you, you, go, you go from there, the offense is starting to pick it up. That was my only concern. That's been my only concern for the Yankees. I don't think pitching was an issue. I think they could have used some more upgrades in the offseason, a.k.a. A Carlos Rondon and someone like that to solidify the number two spot behind Garrett Cole in the rotation. But overall, didn't have serious concerns about uh, the pitching staff and the bullpen. Um, you got guys that can really contribute. Uh, Luis Severino coming off of injury is doing real well. Nestor Cortez is continuing his really good 2021 into 2022 right now. Jordan Montgomery is, you know, your quintessential number three starter. Who you, He's very solid there. Uh, will put you in a position to win a game. 
Um, and that's the same thing for most of the pitchers for the Yankees. They, they may not be big names. Uh, they may not wow you with their stuff and whatnot, but um, their, their starting pitching and their bullpen is pitching, uh, most of it is pitching really well, but at the very least well enough to keep the Yankees uh, within a game and put them in position uh, to win. And then, of course, you had a day like yesterday where the offense did its job and they were down, the pitching was kind of shakier. They were down 4-1, to one, and instead the Yankees come back to win 6-4. Um, so a little bit of firing on all cylinders, guys coming out of their slow start on offense and whatnot, uh, guys from all around the lineup starting to get hits, the pitching continuing uh, to perform really well. But like I said, that was the thing for the Yankees that would unlock themselves, I think, was was their offense, and particularly that bottom part of the order. They can start chipping in. Um, you know, Good things will start happening. They'll start reel off, reeling off wins. Because guys like Judge or Stanton, even Rizzo to a certain extent, uh, you become not too worried about them. Um, Rizzo, I think, has showed he's very solid enough. And now also Yankee Stadium really fits him uh, that you know he's always going to give solid production, which is a lot different than a tone that I was striking. I get that. Um, but at the very worst, like I said, I always thought he was solid, but I don't think we expected this kind of a start to the season for him. Good veteran presence there at the plate and, and just uh, really fits Yankee Stadium, bringing, bringing a, a good pop to the top of that order uh, from the left-handed side of the box so far for the Yankees. But like I said, I'll uh, repeat you know, one more time, like that, that's why my, my big concern for the Yankees was that was their offense. And uh, it, it's really starting to pick up. A lot of guys starting to get some hits. Um, coupled with the continuing uh, perf good performances from the pitching. Uh, so I think you're really excited this week for this three-game set um, against the Toronto Blue Jays in Canada that gets started tonight. Um, a really big early series um, between two divisional opponents that are really going to be fighting out for the division this year, um, as so far it looks like. Um, I think the Red Sox will pick things up a little bit, uh, the Rays a little bit as well. But as of right now, these are the top two teams in the AL East. Um, interesting early series that potentially the Yankees can make a statement uh, or the Blue Jays, uh, conversely, if they take the series or even sweep on the Yankees, um, you know, make a that, that would be a statement there. Um, Garrett Cole, speaking of good pitching performances, Garrett Cole also had... Uh, a really good outing as well uh, yesterday, so that's a good sign that he's picking it up after his really bad start to the year. Um, so good stuff right now happening for the Yankees. Over to the Mets now, who, again, good stuff happening there uh, for them as well. The Mets, who are right behind the Yankees for the best record in the league. Uh, Yankees, once again, six at, sit at 16-6. and six. Uh, The Mets sit at 16 and seven, the last time uh, both New York teams were number one and number two in Major League Baseball uh, records this early on in the season. That was 1986, of course. Met fans remember that well, and that was the year that they went on to win it all. So the Mets will hope that, you know, fortune favors them there and history repeats itself that way. Um, right now, the Mets 
off to a 16-7 and start and still have not lost a series this year. Uh, won their seventh straight series this weekend at home against the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, and it featured just the second uh, the just the second no-hitter in Mets franchise history on Friday night. It was a combined no-hitter that was started by Tyler McGill, who went five innings. And then you have four other pitchers for the Mets who finished it off. Edwin Diaz uh, finished it off with the, the, the strikeout to end off uh, the ninth inning. And, and five pitchers, that's what it took, uh, achieved a combined no-hitter for the Mets, just their second in their franchise history and a 3 nothing win in the in the uh, opening game of the series. Uh, then Philadelphia won the middle game of the set. Uh, Mets won last night 10-5, to I believe. Um, check that right now. I believe, yeah, 10-6, to, 10 to 6, excuse me, they won last night. Um, to take the series 2 out of 3, um, achieve another series win against a divisional opponent. A little bit of an early statement there as well. The Mets currently holding a three-game uh, lead in the division, a three-game lead over the Marlins, the Phillies, Sit five games back of the Mets at 11 and 12. The Braves off to a slow start of the year at 10 and 13. Six games behind the Mets. Um, they come into City Field this week for a three-game set. Should be interesting there. Nationals last place in the NL East, 8 and 16, as of course we all expected. Uh, only a little bit of concern, Matt Scherzer. Struck out nine yesterday, gave up four runs, a little bit of a uh, up-and-down day for him uh, and a slower start to the year. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a, a slight concern. I think you really like what you're seeing from most of the Mets. Um, a lot of guys um, really hitting well. Um, you got a little sprinkled in a little bit of production from around the lineup and whatnot. Jeff McNeil as well, a two-for-four day yesterday. Uh, Pete Alonso continuing a good start to the year. Um, you're getting a lot of good uh, production around um, from the Mets, um, from around their lineup. So, um, And then, of course, you had a big news today that a lot of Mets fans will be happy about as they designated Robbie Robinson Cano for assignment. Um, Cano... Uh, will wind up still getting a lot of money from the Mets. Uh, Steve Cohen, again, as we've mentioned before, in terms of how he's gone about his off-season plans, really doesn't worry about money too much, certainly not worrying about money in this situation. Uh, he's DFAing Robinson Cano, even though uh, Cano will still be owed uh, $40.5 million uh, this year, and the Mets will be on the hook for most of that. So an expensive breakup here. Um, for the Mets, but again, to Steve Cohen, a little bit of a drop in the bucket, I guess, and, that, and that's how he operates. Um, so, as uh, of course, this move happened, of course, because the Major League Baseball rosters this week are moving down to 26 um, as the month of May comes around after it's, the season started out at 28. So they had to make room on the roster. Robinson Cano has just really not been hitting at all whatsoever. Um, he was really just the, a bad contract that the Mets took on um, when they traded for Edwin Diaz from Seattle. Then, of course, you had the PED suspension last year for Cano. 
and then this year just not hitting. Um, I don't know where Robinson Cano will wind up. Um, hasn't been the most effective hitter recently. Um, get, certainly getting up there in age. Interesting where he goes from here. But he, Robinson Cano, now uh, gone from the Mets uh, today. Um, so big news uh, there that we got this morning uh, from Queens. But like I said before, the Mets hosting the Braves for a big three-game divisional set. Um, in City Field uh, this week. Uh, that starts today. Um, so, I mean, it, it's uh, it's still very early in the season. You don't want to get ahead of yourself too much. But the Mets really have some key opportunities um, to really put a stamp down on the division, really put together a big division lead um, early on. They took two out of three against the Phillies this weekend. They, they will have games against the Braves and then uh, this week and then they'll play the Phillies again next week as well um, or late, later in the week I believe uh, they're playing the Phillies again so much like last year where the Mets were leading for the leading the division for a time and whatnot did not really put a stamp on the division when they had a chance to earlier on um, and that of course led uh, to them being overtaken, the Braves winning the division and then going on their World Series run. Uh, once again, the Mets have a, have set themselves up for a real opportunity uh, to put a massive stamp on this division um, early on. Not meaning that they're going to win it, but put a put a huge gap on it, uh, put a huge uh, stamp on on their standing uh, and where they want to be um, this year. Um, so uh, potentially a big week coming uh, for the Mets here. Uh, but we'll see what happens in the uh, next upcoming weeks for them. Really good starts to, to the year for uh, New York baseball. Really like what you're seeing for both sets of fans, both sets of teams. You really like what you're seeing in the uh, opening couple of weeks. Um, like I said, not often we've seen um, these two teams, uh, one and two in Major League Baseball records to start out the year. I haven't seen them this good at the same time for a while. Um, so interesting stuff brewing in New York baseball here in the opening couple of weeks. Good stuff all around. Let's move over here to another uh, team in Queens, and that's to us close to home here with St. John's Basketball. As we see, received some big news last night, a lot of rumors in the last couple of days and weeks around it, but Pretty much an official announcement yesterday we got was that DePaul forward David Jones uh, will be transferring uh, to St. John's, um, another intra-conference transfer. Of course, the Big East has recently gotten rid of its uh, um, intra-conference uh, transfer ban. So now teams and the uh, players within the Big East, uh, players in the on Big East teams can move within the conference. As we see that happen here with Jones uh, moving to St. John's. Averaged 14 points per game last year. Seven rebounds as well. Um, can be a streaky shooter from beyond the arc. But has that capability. So I know with each acquisition. Every bit of St. John's news and, and, and scheme that we talk about the team next year. A lot is going to be focused in shooting. Um, so talking about that. I mean Jones. Hovering around the 30% career three-point shooter um, can be can be a real streaky shooter. 
Um, really can sometimes score in bunches from the three-point arc and then go cold uh, other times and whatnot. So he's capable of providing that needed shooting presence uh, that St. John's uh, sore, uh, really lacks. Um, but the main part of him uh, coming and, and how good of an acquisition this uh, can really be for the Red Storm is his, his play in the open floor. I think he really suits how St. John's want, his game really suits how St. John's plays. Um, and then also on the defensive end, can really can really be good on the defense. I think he'd be a really a big difference maker on the defensive end. St. John's, the way they want to execute their defense, the way they want to execute their press, last year weren't able to do it so well because you didn't have uh, the best personnel, the best athletes really to sort of execute it. So they really pulled back on the press. We're still a solid defensive team, but not the 40 minutes of hell you really expected in the first couple of years that you saw and expected in the first couple of years, the first two years of Mike Anderson. Um, uh, so this year, I think you, you see, uh, I think David Jones brings some more athleticism as well to the defensive side of the ball, can cut out some of those balls coming over the top on the press, and all that sort of stuff, uh, really good, um, uh, can get a couple of steals as well, um, I think really good on both sides of the ball, um, I think can be a real, like I said, a real difference maker on that defensive uh, side of the ball, um, get a couple of steals, be a good eraser on the press as they say, um, and just make an impact on that end, and of course, Bringing in a guy who's a conference uh, proven talent, he's a he's a proven Big East commodity. Fifteen points a game last year uh, can also really be a, a big boost. I think St. John's have really done a, a really well uh, in their uh, in the transfer this season. But before I get on to that, uh, we remember Jones uh, also had uh, twenty four points, ten rebounds, five assists, and four steals against St. John's in a ninety nine to ninety four win. Uh, DePaul win on St. John's back on February 27th. So, uh, like I said, again, a proven Big East commodity. Um, a guy who really can fill up the stat sheet on both sides of the ball and it, and I think can really fit how St. John's wants to play offensively in the open court, fast pace and whatnot, ha really has the skill set uh, to fit in there well. And then also defensively has some great athleticism uh, to match up on a bunch of different positions, grab a couple of steals, be a good eraser on balls over the top, and whatnot. Um, but like I said, I think they're, I think St. John's have really done well in the transfer portal, brought in Andre Curbelo, uh, who could be a really good playmaker for them. At the very worst, I think he brings better playmaking in terms of St. John's and their half-court sets whenever they need to go to that in a game just based on how the flow of the game is going. That's how the game, uh, that, that's where they dict, uh, you know, the game dictates that in a certain situation that they need to go slower. They have to work in the half court at certain times. Like I said, the flow of the game and whatnot, I think Curbelo brings uh, some more uh, playmaking uh, ability in the half court and to set up a, a half court set. Um, and more, some more creativity there. I think that's what Curbelo brings. And then Jones, I think, another ready-made starter, um, you know, to 
uh, bring some really good athleticism, uh, could be a sol solid shooting presence, streaky, uh, it can be a streaky shooter, but has that ability. Um, and then, of course, a really good ability to play in the open floor, which is the Red Storm's bread and butter. Uh, so I think two really good acquisitions, some of the top transfers on the market they're able to bring in. Um, now, of course, it's more of the conversation that are having last year's, can they all put it together? I think there's going to be, I think the St. John's has done well in that a lot of people feel really apathetic toward the program after an underachieving year in 2020, uh, in 2021, 2022, uh, where you thought it was going to be one of the best seasons in recent memory. Uh, they had two all-conference players, really good, solid, high-major transfers coming in and whatnot, fell just short of the NCAA tournament. Um, like I said, underachieved. So now a lot of people are starting to feel really apathetic about the program, uh, wanting to go to games and whatnot, all this sort of stuff. I think for some, these uh, acquisitions really um, bring some more intrigue back to uh, the team a little bit, gets, p gets uh, some ears perked up a little bit to what's going on uh, in the world of St. John's and what this group can potentially uh, do on the court next season. Uh, they still have one scholarship spot available, Interesting to see um, what St. John's does with that spot, if they use it or not. We remember last year, I believe, at an open scholarship to not use it, or that was the year before, I believe. Um, but we've seen in the past Mike Anderson do that, um, so not have a desperation to add. Um, they have a lot of depth at the guard position. Um, Broad and Curbelo, as I mentioned before, also have uh, high school recruits A.J. Store uh, and Colby King coming in as well as you hope Rafael Pinzon has uh, some really good health this year. Um, so you have a really uh, deep guard department. Um, and, and then uh, you brought in Jones as well. So um, there's, there's not a ton of minutes really right now, in my opinion, going around. I think a lot of it is set. Um, so I think if you do use that last spot, Maybe you bring in a, a, a kind of a wing player that can really be a good shooter, a taller guard, again, that can really be uh, a really good sniper from beyond the arc. I think that's more of what you're looking for in their final scholarship spot if St. John's uh, does try again and look in, into the portal to try and fill that. We also got some schedule updates as St. John's. It was announced that St. John's will play uh, in the Orange Bowl Classic on December 17th. Uh, against Florida State, um, so really uh, interesting high major opponent there. Um, good, uh, good start to the conference uh, to the non-conference scheduling for next year. Um, but then you also heard that they will open the season at home against Merrimack. Uh, it is rumored, uh, according to New York Post's Zach Braziller, that they will play uh, Niagara on November 26th, LIU on the 29th, New Hampshire on. Uh, December 10th, and I believe that leaves them with at least two games to fill. Um, I believe those two games could potentially be the Gavit games. Um, I'm not sure if that's undergoing this year or whatnot, but I believe also uh, the Big East Big 12 Challenge, I believe uh, a slot will also be filled in somewhere there um, with that. Um, 
So interest, I think a lot of fans will have um, some issues with uh, some of those uh, games on the card. You, you don't want too many uh, lower mid-major opponents, want to really strengthen your non-conference uh, schedule, uh, provide some good resume opportunities early on in the year. Um, so before I'll make those determinations, you'll see the rest of the uh, schedule. Um, so solid option in Florida State. I think they'll probably add uh, some more solid uh, resume opportunities as well um, before we see the final uh, non-conference schedule and what it would look like. But um, big news last night, David Jones, I think a really good pickup for St. John's. But again, the big uh, question will be, can they all put it together? We saw a, a team last year that once it was all put together from the transfer portal and whatnot, it was good on paper. St. John's last year, I thought they did really well. Brought in Joel Soriano, Montez Mathis, Aaron Wheeler, Steph Smith, Tariq Coburn. That to replace a lot of players that were outgoing. And on paper, it looked like a pretty good team. And then things just kind of fell short for a multitude of reasons. So it's not, uh, you feel like you say it every year. You know, not making the NCAA tournament is a disappointment. That kind of goes for it every year. Um, last year, it was certainly a must goal for them to get it and did not. Um, it just didn't hit those expectations of what you saw of the team on paper. So going forward this year, and it's going to be sort of the same question. I think a lot of people are going to have a little more caution around this team in terms of uh, preseason predictions or whatnot, maybe the, the, the preseason poll and whatnot where this team is going to be. Uh, but right now it's a, it's a pretty decent setup on paper. The question is, can they put it together and bring this team back to the NCAA tournament? Um, I think the difference from last year to this year's team is that they don't have a lot of outgoing play. They did not have a lot of turnover. Uh, yes, you lost. It's huge, absolutely huge. They lost their two best wing scores, and that's Julian Champagny and Aaron Wheeler. You um, lose senior Steph Smith and, and Tariq Coburn, but they still have a real nucleus, a real core together. You, you still have Montez Mathis is still around, Joel Soriano, Pasha Alexander, Dylan Day, Wusu, Rafael Pinzon entering his second year, and, and so on and so forth. You have a core uh, around there of guys who were around last year and who are sticking around uh, this year. Um, so interesting to see how the rest of the offseason uh, develops um, for St. John's coming off of that big news uh, last night. But that will do it for our May 2nd edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. Once again, I'm Mike Zabo. Thank you all for everybody who has listened in this semester, either live or over our Spotify or Apple podcast uh, episodes. Um, thank you so much for all who have listened in uh, this episode and signing off for the final time this semester. I'm Michael Zabo. Have a good day, everybody.